0: Episode four twenty five of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial free by Stepto and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining my me for the roundup, Matthew Hyman, who's chairman of the Cyber and Privacy Working Group for the Regulatory Transparency Project at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Boy, that's a mouthful nephew. And Nick Weaver, who's a researcher at Berkeley and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies. And Brian Fleming, who is a STEPTO National Security and Former National Security Division lawyer at the Justice Department. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for the program. We got a lot of really substantive stories uh, this week, unlike last week when it was all bite-sized. First, as we kind of teased last time, the US-EU Privacy Shield has answered the most important question. They're going to call it 2.0. They're not going to say it's 3.0 or 4.0, which they probably could have justified. And it's out, at least in executive order fashion, as part of our continuing cringe before European authorities. We're issuing a whole bunch of restrictions on the intelligence community designed to meet European requirements and then hoping that they will find us adequate. I, I am reminded, I may have said this before, that when I was negotiating with the Europeans to get an adequacy determination, the team did such a good job that I got them all underwear with, that was emblazoned with a logo that said EU certified adequate right there on the front. And that's sort of how I feel about asking the Europeans for their view of our adequacy. But Nick, what are your thoughts about this uh, this executive order?
1: Oh, no, not again. It's kick the can down the road another two years. So we'll be talking about Privacy Shield 3.0, or no, we'll rename it Privacy Guardian. Because let's be honest, FAA 702 is the NSA Paperwork Reduction Act, that in practice, everything that gets collected under it could be collected with a FISC warrant, but it would be way too much paperwork.
0: So when you say FAA, you're talking about the FISA Amendments Act. And when you say FISC, you mean the court, the FISA court getting approval. And you're right. you You could go in and take every single one of those orders and say we're targeting this foreign person, and their communications go through a U.S. facility, and therefore we'd like an order, but it would blow up the system. There are thousands and thousands of them.
1: Yeah, and we've seen from the Carter Page Fisk warrant that actually getting a warrant through the Fisk court is such a tedious amount of paperwork that I would never spy on anybody if I had to fill that out.
0: And so what what they've done here is is not quite that, although it has an element of that. This executive order says, in order to satisfy the European court, we're going to establish a requirement of necessity and proportionality for any signals intelligence we do against anybody anywhere in the world. And we're going to protect those communications in many cases, at least as well as we would com- protect the communications of Americans that we picked up more or less inadvertently. And I thought some of that sounded pretty implausible. And and the stuff that bothers me, maybe this is inside baseball, but as we all know, the identities of U.S. persons in finished uh, intelligence are masked. So instead of putting in the name of the person that you're intercepting, like, you know, General Flynn, you say a member of the transition team. Now, They're going to do that for non-US persons, which I have to say makes the likelihood that this intelligence will make sense near zero, right? Some Soviet official said to an American official, this, that, and the other. You need to know who the Soviet official is. Well, not Soviet anymore, but Russian. If you have to ask every time, you know, people are reading this stuff quickly and you want to give them the information as fast as possible. And if they trip over the fact that they they don't know who it is. Is it important or is this just guy, some guy popping off? It makes no sense. And so what I fear is we'll end up with fewer protections for the identities of Americans because people start taking a lot of shortcuts, like giving a an explanation of the person that is a dead giveaway to exactly who it is, or routinely providing information about identities without worrying about whether there's some suspicious reason for asking for it. So I have to say, I don't think this is a good thing. We're doing this in the name of of European civil liberties, and we're going to degrade American civil liberties.
1: The other thing is, is A – 50 bucks says this doesn't work. Oh, certainly not.
0: You're right. It it will last two or three weeks, uh, two or three years, and then the court will finally rule that no, creating a quasi-court at the Justice Department made up of people who are appointed by the Justice Department is not the same as having a court. And when we said court, we meant court, uh, and uh, therefore this too is inadequate. Turn in your underwear.
1: And- yet the thing is is if you look at the laws in the EU countries they're far more permissive than 702 First off, oh, that's I so guess.
0: typically American. You just you just don't understand European law. It's so more, much more sophisticated. Which means than what you. we really need
1: to do <laughs> is we're looking at probably quite soon the independent Republic of Scotland and a unified Ireland. We should invite one of those to replace be the successor to the UK and Five Eyes, and then just do everything through there.
0: <laughs> yes, I, so I uh, the other thing that I was puzzled by it. It claims as a way of showing how proportionate and reasonable we are that no intelligence agency, no signals intelligence agency will be able to gather information that would squelch the exercise of First Amendment rights. I thought to myself, what the hell do they think that Cyber Command has been doing to the IRA when they start sending, when they start spamming us with misinformation? Of course, we're going to squelch that. And so, I just don't know what it means to say we're not going to engage in the punishment of people for what they say online when you know that is a significant part of what we expect Cyber Command to do.
2: Stuart, do you think that's a feature rather than a bug in that? saying that you're not going to do anything to squelch anyone's First Amendment rights most traditional reads of the Constitutional law would say those belong to U.S. people, U.S. citizens, and U.S. <laughs> yeah, persons.
0: That's right. So you, you say, so so, so U-I-R-A, you, 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 you don't actually don't have any First Amendment rights. Right. So
2: <laughs> piss I'm off. just wondering if this has been maybe more cleverly lawyered than we're giving the Biden administration credit for.
0: Maybe. Uh, I can't remember. It might, have, it might have actually said free speech, too. And so I don't know. The good news about this, looking through the, uh, the process is is they've structured the judicial review process very cleverly, and it's modeled on some some European approaches to this. You can file something saying, I think my rights have been violated, and they will investigate it. But, of course, it's all classified, so you're not going to participate in the investigation. They'll do an investigation based on what you said, and they'll send you a postcard afterwards that says, on behalf of the, uh, the court, we've reviewed your complaint and... We've either found that your rights were not violated, or if they were, it's been fixed. Uh, <laughs> no, let's get. be
1: honest the standard postcard will say Glomar look it up on Wikipedia. No,
0: no, I, they, they will say this, but it will be, you know, it's it's profoundly unsatisfying if you're ideologically motivated, or even really if you think you've been done wrong, because you don't know whether somebody has said, yes, you were done wrong or not. And so what I predict is after Max Schrems files four of these, we will not see any more filings because it's so unsatisfying. And then the lack of filings will be used to, de- to demonstrate that this is an in- inadequate process when they go to the court. So, But still, kudos to the folks who designed this because it doesn't really put at risk U.S. secrets and it doesn't encourage ideological claims. So that's uh, yeah, take your good news where you find it. Matthew, Joe Sullivan, Uber's chief security officer, was found guilty, which a little bit surprised me.
2: You know, when you read the media reports, everyone seems slightly surprised that they... Got a conviction. I wasn't completely surprised. I know people say it wasn't the strongest case the government could have brought against a CISO. But when and I look it at
0: the- it, just, just to be clear, what it was a, a case of obstruction of justice and misprision of felony, yeah. uh, which was the one that surprised me, which is really why it's different from obstruction of justice is a little unclear to me because it just requires that you conceal. A crime. I guess in this case, what you were doing is you were concealing somebody else's crime, the, right. the hacker's crime.
2: Right. And I, I guess when I look at the facts, I, I I understand some of the consternation by the commentators, such as, well, why wasn't Travis Kalanick? the former Uber CEO also prosecuted because he was the CEO and then there's a lawyer that was on Sullivan's team named Craig Clark who was given immunity to testify against Sullivan but Uber was very clearly under an obligation to report hacks to the FTC as of 2014 because they had had another hacking event and so they have this event in 2016 they lose control of 57 million customers information and bunch of their own drivers 600,000 and Sullivan and the team decide not to go to the FTC to say we've had a hack again and that's that's the case. That is the case. I agree. And
0: and they had a a theory. Their theory was we can retroactively say this is a bug bounty. And if this guy agrees to be bound by the standards of the bug bounty, including not releasing any information that he gets, then we can give him a bug bounty that looks a lot like the extortion payment that he demanded.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And look, I know there are a lot of bug bounty programs at tech companies for good reasons, but shoving uh, this is a bit like trying to shove an elephant into a phone booth to say oh well this was just another bug bounty event and we thank the gray hat or white hat hacker for flagging an issue in our system I-, I think everyone understood exactly what they were doing they understood that this would be reputation reputationally hideous for uber the ftc would drop the hammer on them and they collectively decided yeah we're not going to do it we'll come up with a way to cover it up and so I get people being upset that Kalanick wasn't also prosecuted, but it's hard for me looking at this to see why Sullivan shouldn't have been prosecuted or why there's any great surprise that he was convicted.
0: I thought that they didn't go after Kalanick because they didn't think they could do it without testimony from Joe Sullivan, and that some of the charges here— right? For yeah. at one point he was he was charged with uh, wire fraud—were designed to just turn the screws until he finally broke and agreed to testify against Travis. And he did he didn't, but I yeah, you're right. There was testimony that he had gone to his CEO, who was Kalanick, and told him what was happening, and Kalanick knew about the payment. So if you're a CISO, you kind of say what was I supposed to do? If I were in these circumstances, I'd say I, I report up to my CEO, I report to legal, I'm you know, I I should be protected and they're not now.
2: Yeah, well they're not now, just like other corporate officers. CFOs aren't, you yeah. know, immune from getting nailed for financial misdoings. So I, I think that that is a factor in this case. So yeah. you know, I hear CISO's complaining about it, but on the other hand, guess what? You're getting treated like other senior executives at organizations meaning if you screw around you'll get nailed for it i have to believe that part of the calculus in this case too and i don't know how much of it is but i've got to believe it irked the northern district of california that this guy was a former AUSA. yes, yes that's why that, he- I, it just yes that fact when i read it i just thought oh you know if i'm in that office i know that pisses them off yeah. and so they were going to make an example out of this guy
0: That's That was the bad luck for him. He looked like almost as good a target as Travis Kalanick for reasons that were unique to the Northern District of California. So if you're a CISO, the one thing you should do is you should take this case and the clippings from this case and walk into your CEO's office and say, I need DNO coverage right now. And it has to include criminal investigations because obviously that's a now a risk that I face. And it, it... makes perfect sense for somebody who has a C in his title and information anywhere in it as well to have that kind of coverage.
2: I think this case is also a reminder too, and I don't I, I I've not dug into it deep enough to know. I suspect it didn't happen. And that is when something's going on at your company and your CEO's involved and you've supposedly gotten an okay from the CEO to do whatever, if it's controversial, you better be pushing the CEO to say, are you talking to the board about this? Are we clear with them? Uh, Are we good with the audit committee? Because I'm not aware of that happening in this circumstance. And if I was involved in something this radioactive, I'd want to know that we had coverage from the board.
0: Well, so, look, this was a perfect storm for Sullivan. I doubt that Kalanick was the kind of guy that you say that to. It was all fine until Kalanick lost his job and the new management came in determined to, to be everything Kalanick had not been. No more bro culture, et cetera, et cetera. And so throwing overboard people who'd been part of the Kalinick regime was really easy. And that's what they did. They did a campaign to say, oh, we kn- we had no idea. It was just Sullivan, Sullivan, Sullivan. So, I, you know, it was really bad for him. I, it won't happen to everybody, but, you know, why should you count on luck?
2: Yeah. I also think, though, Stuart, to your point about throwing people out there, part of the old team, this guy had Talks with the new CEO about what was this about, what yeah. was the nature of it, and he purposely downplayed it. And then when they found out the whole story, they went into orbit and got rid of him. So, you know, I, I think he wasn't upfront with the FTC. He wasn't upfront with the new CEO. He never went to the board to say, guess what? This is going on. You should know. And so I think he painted himself into a real corner.
0: Yep. Well, I, I, that's for sure. Okay. You know, we talked a little bit about the Supreme Court grants of certiorari in the Gonzalez against Google case, and more briefly, the Tamna case against Twitter. Supreme Court granted those cert petitions last week just, you know, we gave people, oh, you know, 90 minutes to get ready to talk about it. I thought I'd just go back over it a little for for listeners. It's been portrayed, and it, it is a case about Section 230, this is essentially a case that says YouTube, the case against Google, says YouTube was recommending ISIS videos to people, and then ISIS did a a serious terrorist attack in Paris that we all remember. And one of the petitioners here lost a family member in that attack. And they're saying Google should not have been recommending ISIS videos, that that's material assistance to terrorists and proximate cause of the attack. Google's response was, hey, Section 230, you're treating us like a publisher. And that the lower court, the Ninth Circuit said, we're not going to hold Google libel. We're not going to hold Twitter liable. Twitter it did not apparently recommend stuff, but they did publish stuff. And so they also were pursued for liability. What's interesting about this is the two cases were decided together. Only the Google case seems to be really about 230. The other is about how much help you have to give and how much it has to be related to an actual event for somebody to be accused of material assistance to terrorism and i would not be surprised to see these cases resolved on that ground without ever reaching 230 but there'll be an enthusiasm for reaching 230 and i thought the cert petition and probably a big chunk of the argument over this is going to boil down to This quote from Judge Katzman's opinion in another case, where he really summed up why he thought that 230 has been way overread by a lot of courts. He said, consider a hypothetical. Suppose you're a published author, and one day an acquaintance calls and says, I've been reading everything you ever published, and I've also been looking at everything you've ever said on the internet, and I've done the same for this other author, and you two have very similar interests. I think you'd get along. And the acquaintance then gives you the other information, uh, the other author's contact information along with a link to his published works and calls back three more times over the next week with more names of, of writers you should get to know. Now you might say your acquaintance fancies himself a matchmaker, but would you say he's acting as the publisher of the other author's work? And, and I, that, that seems exactly right. That the language of 230 says you can't treat people as publishers, and recommendation engines are just not what publishers do. They're what social media does. But it's, to come in and say we're immune because of 230 is way overreading the statute. That has worked in the lower courts. I just don't see it working in the in the Supreme Court but we'll see. So that's that's a quick overview of where we're going in the Supreme Court. That case will be decided this term. And I'm not sure that the Florida and Texas laws will get to the court. They've only got two months to get there for a grant to produce an argument this year. So I think we may be in for a series of 230 decisions. All right, more news. God, this was a big news week. Nick, the White House released an Artificial Intelligence Bill of Rights. I loathe it. I thought I'd ask you to tell us what you think is good and bad about it, and then I'll weigh in. I've already weighed in. I published a a piece on this in The Volokh Conspiracy that is unsparing in its criticism of of the whole AI bias movement.
1: Well, I think this is a very good aspirational first step because there is so much opacity in AI and how its decisions affect us. Because let's face it, it isn't intelligence. It's actually these weird pattern
0: matchers. Yeah, machine learning is a better term.
1: Yeah. And the other problem is, is it ends up being deliberately opaque and produces really weird outcomes at times. My quip is machine learning is great when you want to build a pattern matcher. You don't know what you want a pattern match against. It's okay if you don't know what you're pattern matching and it's okay to be hilariously wrong some fraction of the time. And so addressing these as they are being used to make decisions about you and me is really important. And bias is a particular problem because one thing that a lot of machine learning systems have been doing is a machine learning system is a great way to train a computer to be a racist a-hole and a non-trivial number of people seem to like it that way. It's really easy to take protected So I, I hear you.
0: That, why, why don't you explain exactly what you mean by that? Because I completely disagree with you on it.
1: So like, for example, you want to make a AI that recapitulates redlining. That's actually really easy to do. And from a policy standpoint, we don't allow redlining, but you could easily cherry pick the right amount of data or just the fact that, let's face it, our society has been dealing with a the legacy of a few centuries of racism and that creates economic effects. And so you train on the economic effects, you
0: get a racist AI. You get an AI that repeats what we see in real life, which may be racist, but when we see it in real life, we don't say, oh, well, that's just racist. We should nuke that and give everybody who lives in a redlined area $500,000 so they can buy a house wherever they want. We recognize that there are all Complex set of reasons behind the patterns of living, some of which may have to do with people not being able to buy houses elsewhere. Some of which I think this is mostly a just so story are there because of redlining, which has been outlawed for thirty or forty years. Right, I, but they, it's but very we, easy. We don't, we don't say that. we just have to. We just have to give everybody money to to level them off because right now they're not equal. That's not what this is about. Stuart, and you know it, this is about
1: actually understanding what the decisions are that's being made, whether they have bias, and more importantly, I think, is the transparency. The why is the machine learning system making the decisions it does? You have rights when you are denied
0: credit, but what caused that credit score to deny you? Well, suppose it, it denies you based on the value of your home. And then you discover that it turns out that homes owned by black people are less valuable on average than homes that are owned by white people. Does that mean you get to say, oh, well, I just need another $100,000 loan that wouldn't be justified by my income or the value of my home because it was racism that, that gave me the lower score?
1: Or it could have been just as easily the machine learning system messed up in some hilarious way, and actually can't really justify denying you credit. And that's why the transparency parts of this are so important. Is because I, I
0: couldn't agree more. But I, you know, the, we, we don't know how to do transparency. You're saying I'd like to live in a different world than the one we're in.
1: No, I'd like to say that if we're in a world where these opaque computer boxes are making decisions about my fate, I'd like to require that those opaque boxes be able to explain what they're doing,
0: or you get a person in the loop. Okay, so here's one possibility. You can actually determine whether they are doing a good job or not, either by waiting 10 years to see how those decisions turn out, right? Some people are going to default on their mortgages and some people are not. And if you're Artificial intelligence algorithm has done a good job of picking the people who are not, you're going to end up better off than if you had followed whatever the other standard is for issuing mortgages. Or you could go through other sets of data. Where you already know whether people defaulted and ask the machine, if the machine hasn't seen that data, ask it to uh, evaluate the uh, creditworthiness of the applicants. And if it does a better job than anybody else, you've got a better algorithm than the tools you're using now.
1: But nobody is actually doing those evaluations except in the context of that's how they created the machine learning setup in the first place. Right, but if that, you, and obviously,
0: you don't. If you go back and ask it to look at the same data, it's going to get a perfect score. So you have no. To- actually,
1: that's the thing. It doesn't. That uh, <laughs> that part of the problem of these systems is: say you take your set of labeled ground truth data, you use eighty percent of its training, twenty percent as test randomly selected it's not going to be a hundred percent right it will often be hilariously wrong and you have no clue why and and if
0: it is hilariously wrong you have to kind of question whether you've got good training data or whether your algorithm no you
1: can have great training data it's that's how these systems work so, that these systems really only wrong. work when yeah. you can tolerate being hilariously wrong some fraction of the so, time. So let me, let me
0: ask you about the concern that I spent some time on in the vollock piece. Because you can't tell exactly what's going on, you've got when somebody says, I think this algorithm is biased, and all you've got is the outputs. To look at, the way you determine whether it's biased or not is going to be to say, well, does it overrepresent white people and underrepresent black people on things that we like, and the reverse for things we don't like, and essentially apply what amounts to a quota system, saying there has to be a proportionate representation achieved by the output of this algorithm, or it's biased. And as soon as you you say that. Because part of the problem is, is so
1: many of the systems that we've built have these biases in without really even understanding why. So like, for example, one thing that impacted COVID treatment is it turns out pulse oximeters do not work as well when you have dark skin. And this directly resulted in poorer medical outcomes for African-Americans because the pulse oximeter was reading wrong.
0: Sure. When you can see that, and obviously you can see that by looking at external data, but if you're just looking at the algorithm, you can't tell why that you've produced a disproportionate result. That, that's what you were just saying earlier. You don't know what's going on inside the algorithm. And this
1: algorithm. is why the explainability and transparency are even more important than
0: trying to measure So I'm, I'm with you, but that is not what this AI Bill of Rights does. It's not what the pending legislation that I talk about, the so-called privacy bill does. It simply says, if you've got a disparate result, then your AI algorithm is evil and it must be fixed And the only quick way to fix it, the only sure way to fix it, is just to reteach it, reeducate it to produce exactly the quota you want. And and I think that's a crazy approach to fixing what we call racism because it is imposing racism on the machine.
1: At the same time, the question is, is... The step one, coming up with the algorithm that has this disparate impact that you have no clue as to why, that alone is a problem. Well, but you, look, life is full of, a, a life ugly is full of patch. Disparate. An ugly patch of trying to erase out that is far inferior to actually finding out why
0: your uh, stupid box is giving these wacko answers. Well, okay, but life is full of disparate impacts that we don't know for sure what the reasons are. You know, like women make 83 percent on average of what men make in the job market. Do we know why that is? No. If we had an algorithm that reproduced that result, would you say, oh, well, that algorithm is obviously wrong? It is life. and
1: There is actually a lot of documentation on various reasons why, and that's why, among other things, California recently passed a bill where job advertisements
0: have to include salary ranges. So there are there are a lot of just so stories about why that is, and some of the just so stories are women leave the their job the job market more easily, especially when they have children, or they choose jobs that allow them to prioritize uh, the childcare. And then they, there's always the evil sexist and there's boss. there's Also,
1: though. a lot of statistical analysis that goes in, but nobody and knows the a answer lot to of that. Factors. But, but no, but there's a lot of factors, and you want to at least understand what those are if you're building some computer black box that's categorizing.
0: Well, but I you don't, you aren't going to know. And so you're either going to say, well, that's obviously all sexism. So I'm just going to treat all these women as though they made 17% more, or you've got to arbitrarily choose a number between zero and 17 to re-educate the machine on. Or None of that you is very understand satisfying.
1: what's going on and introduce systemic changes like, say,
0: transparency in salaries. Look, I doubt that will do the job, but okay. That gives everybody a feel for the kinds of issues that are worked through in in my piece and that the AI Bill of Rights gets at. I just would say one more thing about this. If you think it's a good idea to kind of do these these analyses, you have to recognize that you're not just doing it for a couple of different racial categories. uh, um. The Biden administration has said, you need to examine for disparate impact, the impact on blacks, on Latinos, on indigenous and native persons, on Asian Americans, on Pacific Islanders, on other persons of color, on members of religious minorities, on women, girls, non-binary people, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and intersect persons, older adults, persons with disabilities, persons who live in rural areas and persons otherwise adversely affected. By persistent poverty inequality. If you do that analysis and ask, is any one of those groups disadvantaged by my algorithm? You're going to end up throwing away all your algorithms.
1: And since probably your algorithm is crap
0: anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, because it because it failed to take account of bald people and treat them fairly. I just, I'm trying. No, it
1: failed to treat the balding old attorney who has to keep going back and forth between jobs.
0: I made that choice. <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. Brian, let's talk export controls. This is a BFD for export control lawyers and probably for everybody in the U.S. and really, at everybody else in the tech world, what the U.S. has done here is pretty much unprecedented and sweeping in its scope.
3: It is indeed. And I can attest to the fact that I've spent a disproportionate amount of my time the last four days wading through the 139 pages of regulations that our friends at the Commerce Department gave us on these new rules. So for those who aren't following this, last Friday, October 7, there was a announcement from the Commerce Department that there were some expansive new China-focused, export control restrictions that have now gone into place. They went into place, but for the most part, immediately. They're targeting China's advanced high-performance computing capabilities. And so this is something I should say that's kind of been long expected in the industry for those who follow this closely, but it finally has come to pass and it takes dead aim at China's civil military fusion doctrine and aims to really not just keep China, let's say, you know, as has been U.S. policy, sort of two gens behind in their chip making capabilities, but now several generations behind by imposing either brand new or expanded restrictions on certain types of integrated circuits, mostly GPUs, hardware that deploys those same technologies, expands U.S. export control jurisdiction in a number of different ways that, frankly, we don't have time to get into today, expands the rules to cover certain U.S. person services, which is a very novel application in the export control world for these types of restrictions. There's really many, many layers to this. For those who really are interested in a deep dive on this, I would recommend friend of the pod, Jordan Schneider, he had on Kevin Wolf, former commerce department official. They did a this really is, this is on
0: his China podcast. On, on which the China is Talk a, a, Podcast. Excellent. It's a, he yep. did a great, great, great interview with him. And, and
3: they they go into depth on this. So I would say that you know just that that's just kind of scratching the surface on sort of what we have here. And so I would maybe just tee up a couple of things to just kind of think about or throw out to the group that I think are are gonna be worth watching here in the short term. So as Stuart noted at the outset, this, this is a very, very big deal. It's a new, a very new and important wrinkle potentially in the US-China trade war. And I think there's three things really to look at here in the short term and the in the sort of near term. Is China going to retaliate? If so, what are they gonna do? And is that gonna have any broad impacts? How are these new rules going to be enforced? There's been a lot of hand wringing and a lot of complaining on the Hill and elsewhere with respect to controls that were imposed, uh, focused on certain Chinese companies in the past few years and too much permissiveness perhaps by the Commerce Department and allowing licenses to continue to supply those types of entities. Here, we have the same kind of default, which is generally a, a policy of denial, presumption of denial across the board here. And so is that going to stick? How is that going to be pulled through? And then the last big piece is it, are these controls going to become multilateral? Are U.S. allies in countries of consequence where this really matters going to apply similar controls? Uh, we've seen that recently in in the Russia context, where many uh, across the world have sort of been unified and how they've applied these controls. But it remains to be seen here if, if others are going to stand up to China, notably, of course, Taiwan uh, as the home of the largest semiconductor boundary in the world, TSMC. For their part, Ty- Taiwan and senior Taiwanese officials have come out and said that they're going to, you know, stand with the U.S. on this, essentially. Uh, but we shall see how that all plays out.
0: Yep. I, I think it's that is the you know, you can't make this work if you don't have it uh, multilateral, is my guess, and it, it's going to be hard to make it work anyway. So I'm surprised that they would announce this without the allies if they thought they could get the allies on quickly. So there's a lot of negotiation still to come, is my
3: prediction. Yeah, I think with all things China, there's always a lag because there's a little bit of a wait and see and who's going to go first. And I think that's probably what we're going to get with this one. and And that's why I don't think we have that.
0: Okay. And I've got you, let's talk TikTok. There was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that we're still at the point where there's an agreement between the administration and ByteDance on how they're going to meet U.S. national security concerns about the way data is processed and maybe about the way the algorithm is tweaked to appeal to American users. What's the status of that?
3: Yeah, so obviously, this is a long running saga. We're almost at the three year mark, I believe, since it was first reported, I think, also in the journal that Cepheus was looking into and reviewing. The ByteDance TikTok relationship, and the latest reports are that perhaps we're close. This has now been reported multiple times that they're getting close to some sort of an agreement that might include, you know, data localization, other safeguards, perhaps some kind of an oversight board that would be U.S.-based. Former intelligence officials, perhaps. Stewart's even gotten a call about that, and lots of other, you know, parameters that have been hotly debated over time in terms of what would really be acceptable here from the. U.S. perspective in terms of meeting the data security needs, if there's not going to be a a divestiture or complete decoupling from ByteDance, which it does not appear that there will be. I think there's a couple of fascinating aspects to this, especially as we're coming up on the U.S. midterm elections and perhaps a flip of one or both houses of Congress coming in January, which is, I think everybody expects that if, if, At least the house flips, there's going to be a lot of investigations that are going to be launched that are looking at these types of issues, looking specifically at this issue, in part because I think TikTok has now been seen as a blue-red issue and and with the money that that flows in. Yeah. I thought
0: that was really interesting. I had not yeah. quite seen it that way, but it's quite clear that the Biden administration is saying to TikTok, you better do a deal with us or but because when those evil Republicans get in, there just won't be any deals to be had. I, and I, I did, you know, it was a surprise to me that the Biden administration wanted to say, oh, yeah, we we're the TikTok friendly uh, party.
3: Yeah, it is a little surprising. I mean, obviously, you know, under Trump, there was the total ban that was floated. It became very clear and they disavowed that very early days under the Biden administration. Doesn't look like we're headed in that direction. But I I do think think if that's all they they did, they they could have said, yeah, we're the competence party. (laughs) Right. But there there does seem to now be this external pressure based on the election and some of those external factors. And that's what's being reported is that there's a lot of urgency, perhaps, to get a deal done and that they're there is a deal that is that is close of course one x factor in that which again this has been an x factor all along and was an x factor back in late 2020 when it was being reported that was there was going to be a forced sale that was helmed by ciffius is what's the chinese government going to do about this and are they going to stand in the way of this ultimately and or are they going to sign off on this so i
0: predict i predict they they will leave tiktok out in the rain that they don't care enough about the success of this one company. And they even a symbolic loss, even a symbolic restriction of the scope of their soft power in the United States will be something that they say, no, we won't tolerate that. So I'm guessing that all of this will be done and then China will say no.
3: That could very well be. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened either. Yeah. So we shall see.
0: All right. The other thing that I thought was interesting, the Daily Mail had a really long story about all of the Democratic money. And maybe this accounts for the blue-red split. Apparently, the chairman of Sequoia, which has 10% interest in TikTok, has given $8.5 million to Democrats or to the Lincoln Project, which is to say, you know, pedo Democrats who call themselves Republicans. And they gave the ACLU... $20 $20 million, so it would change its tune on TikTok. So it may just be that the Sequoia money has turned this into something that the Dems are softer on than the Republicans. We'll see.
1: I wouldn't call the Lincoln Project Democrats. They're Republican trolls. Well, they're, they're quite, they're, they're, no, They I, actually believe in the Republican Party. Balanced budgets, uh, big stick diplomacy, not having felons in
0: office. They, just little details they, like they, that. They, they are grifters who want it all. Oh, phone of course, letter. they're grifters too okay.
1: because it's a good way yes. to make money. But then, but then I, again, I, I, yes. so's they, Trump. How many I'm, emails I'm, yeah. has Trump sent out that you need to send him money now? Yeah. Oh, fair enough,
0: fair How enough. much has he they actually del- spent? They deserve each other. Outside I'm, his I'm, lawyers. I'm willing to go, there, uh, to go there. All right. And speaking of people who deserve each other, there's this story about a hack and leak job run against the former head of MI6. It looks as though it was the GRU. It's getting... Kind of below the fold coverage from not particularly well known media. And Matthew, what's the story there?
2: So Richard Dearlove, who ran MI six in the early two thousands, at least during the Iraq War, I think from the late nineties to maybe two thousand four, was apparently very active with a bunch of former intelligence and political operatives and trying to steer the outcome of Brexit. He he liked and Brexit, right? So he was he was, was very pro Brexit. And he was very concerned that the vote wasn't going to go the way he wanted. He was very pro-Boris, at least at the time, because Boris was, of course, pro-Brexit. And and so, Dear Love, if the release of all this information is accurate, which is, I think, always fair to put that caveat in, Dear Love appears to have given his friends and network very poor advice about the security of these communications channels, saying things like, hey, set up a WhatsApp account. It's easy and it's completely secure when at that very time, WhatsApp was not completely secure and never will be completely secure. Well, Not if you
0: can hack the endpoint. <laughs>
2: right. Right. And that's the thing that Dear Love doesn't seem to understand, even though he's in charge of some cybersecurity group that Yes, things in transit can be encrypted, but things on your phone, when they're sitting on your phone or any other device or, you know, at an endpoint can be hacked. And he doesn't get that. Yeah. And so he gives people all this really poor advice and then all their email comes spilling out. And the Russians just keep hacking and rehacking he and his network. So, like, every time he says he creates, like, a new username for himself and they just spoof that and go at it again because... Not only are his friends unaware of endpoint encryption versus in transit, they also just aren't very good at policing phishing attacks and clicking on links to PDFs and other things. And so. I, you know he looks really foolish here. Yeah, um, this
0: was this was probably aimed not so much at him although obviously they hate him because he was on the other side, yes. but uh at Boris Johnson. This yes. was a hack and leak effort to embarrass Johnson poorly timed because Johnson had embarrassed himself and left. I caution readers that I actually am familiar with the the guy who wrote this story his name is Duncan Campbell. And he has been writing stories about the evils of intelligence agencies since I first got involved in intelligence and way before it. So he's got 40 years of writing stories about the evils of Western intelligence. So he's a logical person, if you're the GRU, to want to send this stuff to, although I think they've released it generally. And there he's honest enough to point out that the organization of this material is not the way it would have been organized when it was hacked it's been repurposed and reorganized and and some of the emails could easily have been tampered with so i i'm Kind of surprised that all the intel, all the social media companies that were so eager to suppress uh, the Hunter Biden uh, laptop over a phony claim of being from the GRU or to complain about the hack and leak operation against Hillary Clinton haven't done anything as far as I know about getting rid of access to, to these Dubious and obviously criminally derived file. So that's a concern.
2: I, I think the other thing this points to as well, Stuart, is just how effective kind of broad based social engineering attacks remain. Yes. Uh, and so when. Anyone that's listening to this who works for a company that does annual cybersecurity training has to sit through the tedious course about don't click on links that don't make sense or things that look odd. There's a reason for that, because that's how most of these attacks are accomplished. And and the Russians are completely keen to this. And, you know, it's sort of like you throw a thousand at it and you hope that one or two stick. And when they do, they they get what they want. And so there's nothing super techie or sophisticated here. It's just people being dumb over and over again.
0: Well, it's, it's so easy. I almost clicked on a link that came to me from another steptoe.com address that said, here's this. I forgot what it was, but it sounded like something I probably didn't need to know about, but they were sending it to me. And so to figure out what it was really about, I was going to need to click on the link. And I was just about to click on the link. I said, Wait a minute. I don't, yep. I'm not sure I even know that who that person is, and uh, but it was you know I was a second away from clicking it, so it, it bears reminding. Although those tedious courses are not particularly effective at uh, keeping this in front of mind. All right, What's let's even do quick
1: worse is when you get the email that says you have to click here to take the course <laughs> <Yes>. on this, <laughs> and it's the legit email.
3: <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yep. uh, Okay, Nick, since we got to do a couple of updates and then get done here. The Elon Musk trial, which I have likened to the Arab-Israeli peace talk process as something that I just don't care. I want to find out. I'll I'll watch it when it's resolved rather than the process. But you've been following it closely. Where do we stand?
1: Well, more importantly, I've been following Chancellery Daly. She's the real expert. And it was basically clear right from the start when that bloody idiot Pony Stark signed a specific performance contract with no waiver on financing, by the way, that he was going to be stuck with this absent some true material misstatements on Twitter's last SEC filing. He tried, he failed. And I think It was like two days before the deposition, he basically goes, okay, I give up, I give up. And the court has basically said, okay, okay, uh, apartheid Lex Luthor, here's your choice. You have until the 28th to close this deal or the rocket docket gets relit and we'll have a trial sometime in November. And unsaid, the Delaware Court of Chancery can actually seize his Tesla and SpaceX stock forcefully sell it in order to pay for the deal. So he has a strong incentive to finish the deal. So, uh, so you, you predicted that he will, nice. he will
0: actually do this deal and all the people who are delighting and gloating over his misfortune will suddenly discover that they've turned over an important social media account to somebody who's not reliably left.
1: I'd more put him as a reliable nutcase with a fragile ego. I'll, I'll miss my Twitter account because we know the rule for 4chan for meets uh, Twitter that good old Tony Stark wants will be don't mess with his ego, which is really
0: fragile and key. So, so he, he is, he's planning to mix this with Other services. He wants it to become (laughs) one one app to rule them all. And I'm sure he wants to go back and reinvent PayPal. And God, PayPal has really given him a lot of help because they just announced that if they don't like stuff you've said, they're going to take $2,500 out of your account and you got they no recourse. They walked that back and it was just- No, no, they did not walk that, that back. They walked, They they said, we'll take it out for misinformation and for harassment or for hate speech. And then they said, oh, we didn't mean misinformation, but we're still going to take it out for hate speech. And you know that means it's dead naming people, I'm sure. It's just kind of an astonishing move on PayPal PayPal's part. I've already disconnected Stuart. PayPal from my from my bank account because I, you know, i put at risk what's in it in PayPal. But I'm not going to put at risk twenty five hundred bucks for, you know, their view of my handling of pronouns.
1: Stuart, the <sighs> people who make a big deal out of oh my god, people have pronouns and change names, you're just radiating that you want to be an asshole.
0: No, no. I'm sorry. I can never keep track of people's pronouns. And there are people who will call you on that just because they want to be an asshole. This assholery goes both directions.
1: For everyone pointing out that no, her pronouns are she in an asshole way. There's 10,000 assholes calling her he just to get a rise out of her. Yeah, fight. but
0: they're not going to get $2,500 out of her account. But the Silicon Valley and PayPal apparently just said, yeah, well, you know, we're going to do that. Or, and they've done this, if you send money to a defense fund for somebody who's charged with a crime, and they think it's the kind of crime that they don't like to see people defend themselves against, they'll call that support for criminal behavior and take the 2500 and all the money that you donated. So I have to say, I do think that the what's interesting about this if is that it has PayPal nothing to do. with actually
1: tried to do that, they would get so reamed with chargebacks, it's not even funny, because PayPal doesn't S- because you're tying it into the banking system and the credit card systems that have really robust consumer protections, so you'd be but back to Pony it's, Stark.
0: It's, I'm, 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 before you go. The credit cards companies are no longer as quick to charge back if they think it's covered by the terms of service. They'll resist your charge back, and if you have connected it as they really press you to do to your bank account, the money just is gone.
1: That's why bank accounts are... Uh, a Bad
0: idea. Bad idea to connect. Yes, I agree. Yeah.
1: Back to Pony Stark. His dreams of this one app model, it's basically more of his Dunning-Kruger. That he really shows Dunning-Kruger in abundance. And basically, he's using that to do some mental justification for... Basically, he's already lost 15 to 20 billion bucks and also probably going to damage Tesla stock and you could be right feel maybe better. he's
0: you know he was too dumb to realize that you can't just start a new car company in the united states too dumb to realize you can't have reusable rockets I, and too dumb to realize that you can't be he's Twitter too dumb to real realize
1: success. that you really want lidar on your autonomous vehicle
0: yeah yeah no i agree he's he hates lidar for reasons i don't fully understand okay, last uh, last thing i wanted to talk about and then we will clean this up is i got a very heartfelt and angry complaint over what we talked about last time, which was the Just the News story about the the Electoral Integrity Project. And the story left you with a sense that the Electoral Integrity Project had gotten a lot of money from the government, from CISA in particular, had been part of an effort to find stuff said about the election that stuff that Trump was saying every week, and have it taken down as misinformation, and that the reward for that was the the later funding from government. The story I want to emphasize didn 't quite say that from just the news; it was more careful than that it was it was done by John Solomon, who was certainly a real reporter, but it, it left us with a sense that this is really a dangerous a phenomenon to have the government passing on the stories and the government's judgments reflected in how stuff is taken down by the social media. And I, this is somebody I know and I respect, and he really felt that the story had done him wrong. I'm not sure I completely agree. I do think you need to go back. If you listen to that, you should Look at the story in Just the News, and then you should look at the blog posts that the Elector- Election I- Integrity Project put up. I'll put a link to it and try to figure out how you feel about this. But I will say he's been getting – everybody who works with the project has been getting the usual experience when you – Tread on people's toes in this space, which is they're getting harassed and yelled at and threatened. And, and it, there's just really no call for that. You can disagree. I do disagree. I think that it's some of the stuff that the electoral integrity project did shouldn't be done again, but that doesn't mean I think that they're evil or that they deserve to be dragged. So that's my quasi correction to uh, the last episode's discussion. Matthew, Nick. Brian, thanks for for coming. This was great. It was a terrific conversation. For the audience, if you've got questions or feedback, send it to Cyberlaw Podcast at stepto.com. Leave the show a rating and a review. We'll read it on the air. I do have I have one comment I wanted to pass on. This was not in a review. I gave a speech last week at the Identity at Identity Week conference in Washington, and somebody came up afterwards and said, "Yeah, I was listening to you while you were talking and I also subscribed to the podcast. Podcast, and I listen to it when I'm gardening. And so the whole time you were talking, I just kept smelling grass. Uh, and I thought, yeah, you probably listened to 420, uh, episode 420, over and over again. But in any event, it was a lot of fun. And that is indeed our, our goal, uh, is to provide cyber policy you can rake leaves to. And so we have accomplished our mission. Uh, I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 425 of the cyber law podcast brought to you by steptoe and johnson
2: we may be mixing a superhero metaphor but if uh with regard to tony stark it appears his kryptonite is to schedule a deposition
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i've got a magic
3: subpoena <laughs>